Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Aren't you thankful to be in the house of the Lord? No better place. It certainly, certainly is a bad thing to miss church. <laughs> it's a bad thing to miss church for any reason, especially when you're sick. And so I have been under the weather. I'm still in the weather. <laughs> and I would appreciate your prayers this morning, just to be transparent with you. Thankful to be here, though. Thankful to be in the land of the living. God, it's good. We've been talking about the power of forgiveness. And these four lessons will conclude today with the tale of two thieves. I do believe that forgiveness... It's probably one of the greatest commodities that human beings possess. The, f- the fact that we are able to obtain forgiveness and that we have the ability to forgive is two of the greatest things that a human being can possess. We serve a God who is always ready to save, and I am so thankful for it. Join me this morning in the book of Luke. We'll read verses 42 and 43 of chapter 23, the book of Luke, the Bible says, and he said unto Jesus, this is the thief on the cross, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Lord, remember me. And Jesus unhesitatingly said, today you will be with me in paradise. And with that, let's talk about these two thieves and the power of forgiveness. Aptly named the king of Israel, it would have made all the sense in the world that that Jesus would have associated himself with the elite of society. He was aptly named the king of Israel. And so it stands to reason that he would associate himself or at least be in league with the renowned or possibly the uber-educated or the most important of Jewish society. A king that would enter the world under such circumstances, immaculate circumstances, should enter with great substance, great stature, great pomp, circumstance, but he didn't. He was born into less desirable conditions. In fact, he was born in quite the most tumultuous times in history, and he was born into a marital relationship that's already wrought with stigma. He came to this earth unlike any king would have entered this earth. He lived in humble housing. He served and labored as a common man, and he lived among common men. In fact, I'm thankful this morning that Jesus had a knack for hanging around not-so-perfect people. 
He called the disillusioned. He connected with the discontented. He dared to care for the destitute and died between ultimately what society would deem as derelict and deviant men. The holiest man who ever walked the face of the earth. The holiest man who ever lived, who ever walked on the leather of shoes. Peter knew him as well as any. And he said that there was no guile found in his mouth. Neither did he commit sin. Yet he was crucified. Yet he was crucified as the center focus between two convicted thieves, two of society's scourge. It was as if he was the chief sinner in the equation, just destined to be in the middle of the destitution. While he hung there, suspended by his hands, nailed to that cross, nailed, driven into his feet, and the agony of pain that wrought his body just didn't seem to be enough for those who once shouted, crucify him. It just didn't seem to be enough that he was nailed to a cross for a sin that he did not commit. And so they passed by him continuously in rotation, mocking and reviling. Roman soldiers ignorantly yet disparagingly wrapped a scarlet robe around him, shoving a crown of thorns onto his head and placing a reed in his hand like a scepter. And then they pretended to honor him by kneeling before him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They mercifully whipped him, and then they crucified him between two miscreant thieves. Matthew records the words in Matthew 27 and 39. And he said, and they passed by, reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and build it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Peter would later reference that day in his writings to the church. He said in 1 Peter 2 and 22 of Jesus who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. And so while he was pouring out his love, while he was hanging there on that tree, and while he was dying for the sins of the world, 
even dying for those men and those women who mercifully reviled him and murdered him while they still mocked him and blasphemed him. He was still dying on that tree for them. They should have loved him, but instead they expressed hatred toward him. They should have worshipped him and blessed him, yet they blasphemed him. Unknowingly, they blasphemed him for actual truths. It was their lack of understanding. It was their lack of understanding as they attempted to save themselves by attempting to, to, to have him save himself from the cross and the inevitability of death that would follow but that what they did not understand and what they did not know is that this was the king of the Jews. What they did not know in that moment is that he was, he is, and he always will be the king of the Jews. And it was not the fact that he did not save himself from the cross that disqualified him from being that king. Hear me this morning. It was not because he didn't save himself from that inevitable death. It was because he did stay on that cross that made him the king. It was his ability to call down angels from heaven to take him off of that cross. They would have shown up at his very word. They would have delivered him from the pain and the agony of that cross. They would have ministered to him. They had already done it before. They would have done it again. It was not his ability to call angels down that made him the king. It was that he did not call angels down that made him the king. It was that he did not give in to his flesh, but rather he laid down his life and gave up the ghost for the very people that were mocking him that day. After nailing him to that cross, the Roman soldiers nailed a sign above his head. He accused him of being the king of the Jews. They wrote a sign over his head that said, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. You see, when someone was crucified in the Roman times, the charge against that person was first written down on a sign. And the criminal carried it around their neck or it was hung around them in some fashion. And they would display that sign as they walked, displaying finally affixed to the cross with them would be that sign intending to deter anyone who would contemplate committing that same crime. The Romans' message was simply this. Do this, and this will be done to you. Commit this, and this will be your fate. But neither the Jews nor the Romans were affirming truthfully that they believed that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Rather, they were professing that the Romans ruled the Jews. And this is what Roman power will do to anyone claiming or being proclaimed to be a king or to be a rival to Caesar. Another 
misunderstanding by the Jews and by the Romans. You see, the Jews were convinced. They were thoroughly convinced by their own Torah and their own Pentateuch, their own prophets, that there would be a Messiah, but that he would come with an iron sword and that he would lay down an army amassed to conquer all earthly oppression and over overturn any political uprising against the Jews. The Romans were a superpower, yet obviously, obviously afraid of any uprising of any kind that would threaten their reputation as a dominating entity in the earth. And so they quickly, they vehemently squashed any and all apparent attempts of what they viewed to be a rival. But what they didn't understand is that Jesus did not come to be a rival to Caesar. Nor was he attempting to complete a, a somehow a political overturn or compete with Pontius Pilate or with the Roman rule. He didn't come to be a rival because he has no rival. He didn't come to be a rival to Caesar because Caesar was no match for the gospel of Jesus Christ he has no rival and he has no competition he is, he will be he always will be the king of the Jews and he always will be the king of us and the world you see the Jews were a few millennia earlier too early in their assumption and the Romans well they just simply underestimated the power of the cross. Their own torture device worked in our favor. Their own device, their own thing that would eliminate any power that would uprise above their power and rule worked against them. You see, Jesus' own people, his own people did not accept or honor him. And they still don't in most regards because of the cross. You see, the cross was just a symbol for shame. It was a symbol to the Jews that it made Jesus repugnant. It was an undermining of their faith. It was an unworthy symbol of their faith. But this morning, what looks like Death and destruction to them is not death and destruction to me. You know, it's, it's the cross that makes everything possible. It's the cross that makes Jesus praiseworthy to us. It's not the cross that makes him repugnant to me. It's the cross that makes him praiseworthy to me. I am thankful for the cross of Jesus Christ. It's there where my sins were dealt with once and for all. It is at the cross where he died. It is at the cross where the veil was torn in to somebody hear me this morning it was at the cross it was there where my access was granted 
it, it was there where once atoned for sin that was just pushed back for a time, it was there where he paid everything in full. Jesus paid it all. It's at Calvary's cross that allows me to worship him for who he truly is, the God of the universe who came in flesh, who laid his own life down for me. I know it's the sins of the world. I know that we could blanket statement that, but I wonder if somebody this morning would realize that he laid that life down for me. He did it for me long before I knew him. He did it for me. He laid his life at the cross in the most humiliating way in the most disparaging way what a weak thing to lay there and allow men to nail your hands into a cross who could lay there who could lay there and allow them to do that I don't think you could I don't think I could your flesh would be fighting so hard don't nail me to this cross but he nailed them he nailed himself to the cross it was so humiliating but hear me this morning it was what I deserved I should have been the one laying there I should have been the one nailed to the cross but he carried it out on my behalf and so with that I had the opportunity to worship him in spirit and in truth not only in word but in deed and in action and living my life a devoted life to him and following his word. How? Can I ask you how? Could we do anything less in light of the cross? How could we do anything less in light of the cross? Why don't we lift our hands for just a moment here and thank God for the cross. Oh, God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your life that you laid down, oh, God, for our sins. Oh, we praise you. We praise you. We praise you. Come on, just for another moment, would you thank him? Oh, we thank you for the cross, oh God. Oh, what mercy. What mercy. What mercy. People on the ground that day were not the only ones who were lobbing insults at Jesus. They were not the only ones who were Hurling accusations. People on the ground were not the only ones who are lobbing their distaste and distrust. The Bible says there were two thieves. One of them, we have very pointed conversation at his malcontent toward him. One of the thieves lobbied for Jesus, as did others. To save himself and to save both criminals crucified with him. He expressed his condescension, his condescending sentiment, and echoed the words of the crowd of onlookers. He said, If you're the Savior, if you're the Messiah, our Savior King, get to saving. If you have so much power, start using it. Start with yourself and then save us too if you really are who you say you are. 
Well, you may never think. Well, this may be never a conscious thought in your mind of using such words of conveyance, such incendiary tones. We can learn something from this this morning. First and foremost, it is absolutely no way to approach God for salvation. That goes without saying. But secondly, though we may not utter the words, we must refrain from having this same type of mindset when approaching God for anything. To think that anyone could ever use reverse psychology on the Lord to somehow tempt Him. And we're talking about a man who was 40 days from food. And the most cunning being couldn't tempt him to make stones bread. So you think you're going to tempt him into salvation? Twisting his arms some way into getting him to acquiesce to your demands? I tell you this morning, it is an act in futility. He will not be persuaded. How that anyone could ever thought of thought or have a thought process like this is unimaginable. Yet, if we were completely honest, if we were looking into our heart of hearts this morning in ourselves, we would have to admit, please don't raise your hand, that perhaps at one split second or another, at some moment in your life, you could have thought, if God if God is God, then why all of this? If He is who He says He is, then why this? Why that? Why can't this just be taken care of? Or why cannot this just be done away with? But here is the stark reality the truth that is unrefutable is that I don't have the right to demand anything of God. I have no recourse. I have no inroad to ask of God anything because God does not owe me anything. I've already said it, but He laid down His own life for me. And so I have nothing to offer in return and so I can never under any circumstances ever forget that Jesus reached that Jesus lived that Jesus loved and Jesus died for me when I was still lost in my sin he died on that cross long before I was ever a thought in another human being he died on that cross while I was still living in my sin and destined to die by my own rule but he still climbed upon that cross and allowed himself to die for me he didn't wait he didn't somehow wait through the annals of time before I got my life together 
He didn't wait in somehow for the annals of time to occur before you got your life together. He, he didn't wait until I was sanctified first. He didn't even wait for me re to repent of my sins first. He went ahead and died for me anyway long before I ever knew that I needed a Savior. And so my approach to Him must contain that thought. Every single time I enter into His presence, I lift up my hands and I lift up my voice and I thank you God for what you've done in my life. I have no demands. I have no prerequisites. I have no, no issues and, and, and no, no list of things that must be done. I just want to enter into your presence. I just want to give you praise and glory and honor for who you are. writer of Hebrews says that we should come before the throne uses the word boldly to enter into his presence boldly before the throne of grace but that word boldly means confidently not confidently in ourselves not confidently about what we have accomplished. Not confidently that even God would do anything on our behalf. It simply means to come into His presence confidently. Not brazen. Not brash. Not flippant, but confident in the grace of God. Not confident in my own flesh. Not confident in my own accomplishments. Not even confident that God is going to do anything on my behalf. He's already paid it all. And so I come before Him confidently, confident in His grace that we even have the opportunity to do it in the first place. And so we come before Him in humility we profess him to be who he really is the savior we recognize his greatness and his grace for dying for us we must recognize that it is our sin not someone else's sin we have to internalize this and make it a personal issue that it is our sin that nailed him to the cross. And so we make no demands of him. It's at the cross that we humbly bow down. And we humbly confess our sins. Because only the humble, repentant heart find forgiveness. Psalm 34 and 18. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. And saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. David would say again in Psalm 51 and 17. The sacrifices of God are of a broken spirit. And a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And so we come into his presence confident.
in His grace to know that our humility puts us in a position to receive His grace. When we come before Him with our list of demands off the table, when we come before Him with our prerequisites out of the picture and our hearts as humble as possible, knowing full well that God does not owe us a thing that is pure and true humility. And hear, hear me, this is what humility will produce according to Matthew his account in Matthew 27 and 44 he refers to thieves plural joining in with the crowd now up to this point we only have the words of one but Matthew he he didn't make a mistake he said there were thieves plural which means that both of them cared the same sentiment as the crowd. But somewhere, somewhere along the way, and this is very simple, this morning, something something changed in the atmosphere. Somewhere along the way, one of these men changed his approach. At one time, he was complicit. At one time, he was angry. And, and dejected as most of the crowd and the man directly to his left and his right. But now, somewhere along the way, he changes his approach. Luke 23 and 39 and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying dost not thou fear God seeing thou art in the same condemnation don't you fear God don't you understand that your fate is the same and death is inevitable and we we indeed justly we we deserve to be here we should be here we were convicted of a crime that we did commit and this is our sentence we are supposed to be on this cross we are supposed to die at the hands of the Romans but not this man not him I see no fault in him we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds but this man hath done nothing amiss and in a moment one of these men had a remarkable change of heart the the Bible is not completely clear on what could have changed this man's mind and so because of that I believe that we have a little bit of space this morning to use our imagination can I do that thanks I appreciate it perhaps it was the way that he witnessed Jesus respond under that immense persecution maybe he just remembered he was a Jew he remembered his parents as a little boy as they would read the scripture to him and his mother and father would say these words of Isaiah all we like sheep 
have gone astray. We, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had no done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin he shall see his seed he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he he shall bear their iniquities perhaps it all came flooding back to his mind all the memory and he realized it's he this is the Messiah this is that Jesus who will save his people from their sins he saw as the soldiers pierced his side and cast lots for his clothing after spitting on him and beating him and plucking his beard from his face but all he heard Jesus say was father forgive them for they know not what they do father forgive them for they don't understand what's going on right now they don't hear it they don't see it their eyes are blinded God forgive them for they know not what they do and in a moment it broke his heart in a moment it pierced him to his soul deeper than those nails could have and in a moment he realized his own involvement in his own transgression he in a moment understood his own culpability and in a moment this man repented of his sins he said Lord remember me when thou comest in to thy kingdom Lord remember me when you come into thy kingdom hear me this morning Jesus didn't chastise him. Jesus didn't berate him. He didn't point back to his past and say, wasn't that you just a few minutes ago that was joining with this other thief and with this crowd as they wagged their fingers and shook their head at me? Was that not you that was backing all their insults? No, no, no. Jesus didn't require him to beg and he didn't require him to plead and he really and truly didn't even require him to wait because in a moment 
moment he repented and in a moment Jesus said verily I say unto thee thou shalt be with me today in paradise today not tomorrow not next week not later on today not next year not atonement but right now immediately in this moment this penitent thief was forgiven of his sins and hear me ladies and gentlemen that is both the power and the promise of forgiveness he is faithful and he is just if we will confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins what an absolute what an absolute beautiful picture of God's amazing grace now hear me this morning disclaimer time this is in no way an advocation of a deathbed repentance or some frivolous life that waits until the last minute to prove himself to God and repent however I do have a message this morning for those who seemingly think they have gone too far somehow you think you've waited too late in your life to repent and begin a life with the Lord I can confidently point to this story and tell you emphatically that that is a refutation and it is a lie from the pits of hell. You have not waited too late. You have not exhausted. If you've got breath in your body this morning, you can find your way to the foot of the cross. You can repent of your sins and God will forgive you. Hear me, Jer. I said it before. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even though the thief blasphemed Jesus on the cross, God's grace was greater. And Jesus still forgave him. But since he lived and died before Jesus died on Calvary and rose from the grave, the thief was saved immediately upon his faith and his repentance. But when Jesus poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, he inaugurated a brand new covenant for believers. Our experience today with Jesus is a better way. Our experience here today, it beautifully builds on faith and repentance as it leads us into a covenant relationship with Him. This is only accomplished through water baptism in Jesus' name and being infilled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost by the evidence of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance as we are adopted into God's holy family. This experience of the repentant thief gives us a glimpse of how limitless God's grace really is. The Lord takes great pleasure in saving those whose sins and failures are particularly abundant. God's grace and mercy are so much more abundant than we ever could imagine. And we have seen it throughout this study. And we can see it throughout Scripture. I'm coming to a close. You can stand this morning with me. People like Mary Magdalene bound by many devils, found grace in God's sight and was delivered. She became one of Jesus' most loyal and faithful followers. Simon Peter himself would deny Jesus three times around a barrel fire the night before, the night of his arrest. 
not only denying him, but cursing. Yet the Bible says he found a place of repentance and wept bitterly. Although he struggled with the whole process, we see the redemptive grace of God on the day of Pentecost as Peter delivered the keys of salvation to the masses. Saul persecuted the church, wreaked havoc on the saints of God, committing them to prison for their faith. Yet Jesus sought him out on a road to Damascus while going to carry out the very act of mayhem to shine a light of redemption and revelation in his eyes, allowing him a space to repent. And Paul, we know, became the apostle that would plant churches, preach the gospel, and write the majority of the New Testament of Scripture. But that's not all. It's not just bound up in these four lessons. It's not just bound up here. 1 Corinthians 6 and 9, that same man, Paul, wrote this. Know ye not, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But ye are washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you when you were lost in sin, but you are sanctified. You were lost in your sin, but you are washed. You are justified in His name and by His Spirit. We don't have to look very far. We don't have to look very wide to find God's grace on display. I don't have to look down my nose at somebody. All I've got to do is look in a mirror and I'll see God's grace in action. I don't have to look at somebody on the street. All I have to do is look in a mirror. And so for this cause, we ought to be the most forgiving people that ever walked the face of the planet because this is the truth. We have experienced the greatest forgiveness that anyone could ever expect. God has forgiven you of your sins. God God has washed us clean, has purified our hearts, has sanctified our minds, and set us on a firm foundation. It's by His stripes that we're healed, and it's by His Spirit that we can live an abundant life for His glory. And so when we repent, let's trust that God has truly forgiven us. Let's receive God's grace and choose not to continue in our sin. And let's live a life of forgiveness towards others. 
just as God has forgiven us. And always, above all, understand that we simply cannot make it without Him and without His continued grace in our lives because it's by that grace that we can find a place of repentance and know confidently that God will meet us there. Let's lift our hands to heaven. Let's let's lift our voices to heaven and thank Him for everything He's done. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your mercy and Your grace, God. It is abundant. It is more than we could ever deserve. God, I'm asking You to help us to receive Your grace. Help us to extend grace and forgiveness to others, to be a light for You, a city that is set on a hill, God, and cannot be hid. And so, Lord, we are lighting a candle today to let Your light so shine among men that they may glorify You in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Come on, clap your hands one more time to the Lord and thank Him. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.